Hey folks, let's spend some time with friends up north. Pat Kreitlow of Up North News is on Lake Wissota. Kristen Bry of Asgos, Wisconsin is along Lake Michigan. And up on Lake Minocqua is Kirk Bankstead of the Minocqua Brewing Company. Wherever you are, welcome, because you're up north. Well, hey, welcome to the cabin. Glad you've made it for another week. You've made it up north. Nice to have you here. I'm Pat Kreitlow, Managing Editor of UpNorthNewsWI.com. And I'm Kirk Bankstead of the Monaco Brewing Company. And there's one less microphone in the cabin today, one less box on the video feed because uh, Kristen Bry is on assignment for Up North News and uh, it's related to June Dairy Month. So I'm sure that she will have uh, more to say about her uh, report from the farm next week. Uh, but in the meantime, we will be talking about June Dairy Month on this week's episode. Kirk and I will talk to Hans Breitenmosen from uh, up in Lincoln County, up in the Merrill area about June Dairy Month and also uh, about uh, fair maps and redistricting, something that he's very active in and, and something that, Kirk, you you know a thing or two about as well. You uh, <laughs> Because of that guy, because yeah. of Hans Brighton Moser. That's why I got into this thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, it's something that should be nonpartisan. If you want fair elections, you want as many people to vote as possible and you win on your ideas. Or you rig the maps or you restrict voting like things the Wisconsin State Senate did today, Wednesday, as we record this. Uh, and so these are these are some of the things that we'll talk about. Um, anyway, Kristen, you'd normally find her, well, you can always find her short political comedy videos over at As Goes Wisconsin on any of your favorite social media feeds. We join you live every Wednesday at seven on Devil Radio, News Talk 92.7. Play it back over the weekend. We post it at upnorthpodcast.com. Our email address is info at upnorthpodcast.com. And uh, so, Kirk, we we head into the week or we head into the latter half of this week, hoping that eventually it will stop being ninety five degrees every <laughs> single day. I I on my video feed do not have the virtual background of Lake Wasota because it would show my brown my lawn getting browner by the hour already. Whereas you have a lovely view of Lake Minocqua that, frankly, I would want to jump into right now if if I were up there. <laughs> yeah, man. So. I don't even though it's like been 90 in Wisconsin. Uh, have you read the news that like the Middle East is getting 125 degree weather? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but it's a dry heat, you know? Well, well, I mean, obviously, like 90 degrees for Wisconsinites is still <laughs> still melting temperature. because I actually blood I, isn't used to it. <laughs> I know you're, it's not like your sneakers are going to melt like they would at 125 degrees or something like that. I did actually learn the difference, though, when when people in Arizona always talk about they give you that phrase, oh, but it's a dry heat. And, you know, I've been to Arizona. I, I, I get that. I get the dry heat thing. And I, I'm sure those parts of the Middle East are the are the same way. Um, but then, as we talked about last week, I, I lived on uh, an island, uh, Grand Cayman, uh, for three years uh, down in the Caribbean. And that is not a dry heat, let me tell you. Um, and much like this week, the, the the problem here has, you know, it always is the humidity. It's the heat index, you know, that that takes it up. And boy, that, that humidity really makes a factor one way or the other. What we have had, though, is some of these mornings have been downright glorious before the humidity machine, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. turns on again. And I, But you, I can't believe it's only been two weeks 
since Memorial Day weekend when people were covering their plants because of frost <laughs> and freeze warnings. Well, so I love it that we're going to be talking about dairy farming today because we sound like a bunch of farmers right now, Pat. Because oh, we talk. <laughs> That's all this is. This is just a talk over the line fence. Talking about talk over the line fence. You talk about the weather. You know, we're talking about, about where where are you going to get roasted chicken this weekend, and and who does Molly be? You know, where where is her show performing out of? You know, this weekend for the, for those of us who do watch polka shows on Saturday night. And yes, my my in laws in Manitowoc County still watch the Molly B polka show on RFD TV every Saturday night. And before that, it was the Big Joe polka show, and. Uh, Fun fact, Kurt, my claim to fame, I've been married, it's about to be 38 years, and uh, I'm sorry, about to be 35 years, we've known each other 38 years, and our wedding in 1986 is still the last one we've been to that had a dedicated polka band as the reception, you know, <laughs> which we had all the time growing up, but now it's been nothing but DJs and cover bands, and ours was the last one with a, a full-time polka band. I know they're still out there, I just haven't been to any weddings that have them. I don't know if you've been to one recently. Way to go, Pat. Well, we held a uh, we held the first ever Oktoberfest celebration uh, in October in Manaqua, which is a very cold time to have an outdoor festival. And all this, the the band that I hired were a bunch of instrumentalists who freaked out by like the thirty degree year old wet the thirty degree weather, and said our instruments might you know, shrivel up and die. So we can't do this. A week before the show, they bailed on me and they were gonna play all this oompa-pa music. So I, I called into some good Polish girl in Stevens Point that I grew up with, a Polish Catholic girl. And I was like, I need some help. Like in, a, in like a week, you gonna know any polka bands that might sound a little German, but, but are still polka. She's like, oh, I got like 10 on my- Oh, that's so great. Of course she did. <laughs> Of course she did. Good for her. Well, I had the the opposite experience in terms of the temperature extremes. Um, you know, it, mentioning that living in Grand Cayman 2014, 15, and 16. So there was September of 2014, and we had heard that this bar on Grand Cayman was going to have Cayman's first Oktoberfest. Well, we we had gone back home to Wisconsin for a visit and brought back with us to Cayman my lederhosen and her dirndl and we were the only people on this island who showed up in authentic dress and who knew how to poke up and we were the bell of the ball every, every Caymanian Jamaican Filipino Canadian you name it everybody wanted to take a turn with us polka dancing to learn how to do it and it, it would have been heavenly, except, again, September in Grand Cayman, the heat index is usually about 101 degrees, and we're in these heavy corduroy, oh. you know, uh, outfits. And we, oh. I know I lost 20 pounds that day, but it... It was worth it to, to uh, teach polka dancing to a whole bunch of people in the Caribbean. That, that was great. You are not going to have a polka band in, in Fitchburg coming up this weekend, I dare say, but you, you have a lot of fun planned with music otherwise. Yeah, yeah we're doing, um, uh, we're doing the, an occupation emancipation party again, the second one. And uh, it's Saturday, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., all day of music, four bands, um, it's, it's just our celebration of getting vaccinated 
I'm going to talk about, I was going to talk about it in my little promo. Um, yeah, but it's, we're excited about it because uh, in Madison, I mean, it's the Madison area. So uh, there's a ton of progressives down in Madison. And so it's probably going to be, I think we might have like 400 folks show up and it's, we're going to celebrate the patriotism of, of getting and the freedom associated with getting vaccinated and caring about one another. And uh, it's, it's going to be a blast. That's good know. because that, that push has to go on. We are still, you know, not quite cracking 50% in Wisconsin of people, you know, receiving even at least one vaccine dose. And in some of those communities with the lowest vaccination rates, people are still catching being infected by the coronavirus and still being hospitalized. And we're still seeing about three to four deaths per day in Wisconsin because of COVID-19. And it's now preventable. Just get yeah. the shot. And, and if, even if you're not doing it for you, do it for the people that you may come in contact with who, who would catch it otherwise. Yeah, I just heard that the, like the state of Wisconsin is, has to run another ad campaign mm -hmm. to try to convince people to do this. They're going to spend you know, another probably tens, tens of thousands of dollars to, you know, to, re, like, to re-energize this because it's slowed down so much, the, the rate of vaccination. Well, and it doesn't help when you still have politicians, you know, that that are, you know, poo-pooing this and and trying to minimize it. Uh, and, and yet at the same time, uh, as we make the transition here to, to this week's headlines, still trying to take credit somehow for the for the the good economy that's going to come out of all this as things restart. The state legislative fiscal bureau, it's a nonpartisan agency that works up the budgets. Uh, they came up with a new forecast this week, predicting that the state will now have more than $4 billion in revenue collected compared to what is projected to be spent. And uh, so, I mean, this is, this is extremely good news, but it didn't happen by itself. It happened because of the American Rescue Plan uh, from President Joe Biden and Democrats in Congress, not a single Republican voted for the American Rescue Plan, which put $1,400 checks in people's mailboxes, extended unemployment benefits, another round of PPP loans for small businesses, a trillion dollars in aid to states. And it's that aid to state and local governments that has led to this, as well as the safeguards that we could do that weren't you know, taken to court and struck down keeping people safe because Kirk, as you well know, if, if some folks would have been able to open up this economy before enough people were starting to get vaccinated, uh, Lord only knows what the toll would have been on businesses and people's lives. Totally. No, I remember this, this whole, this whole odyssey of uh, me thinking about this podcast and me starting the super PAC, uh, you know, stemmed from not getting that PPP money from my own brew pub in uh, September, or even when it was passed by the Democratic controlled House in June, and then Mitch McConnell making a political football out of that whole thing. And they, Ron Johnson, Tom Tiffany, and the host of federal uh, congressmen that were Republican voted against that bill, which left restaurants, bars, and uh, brew pubs, and, and a host of other Wisconsinites just twisting in the wind. And uh, I, I, will never for, I will never forget that. What no, and, and so to, to hear uh, some of the talk, you know, you, you have to, again, look at some, some of us nerds look at, you know, the reports from the Legislative Fiscal Bureau. And, and we looked through this nine page report this week. Nowhere in there, nowhere in that financial analysis does it say the budget surplus is happening because the legislature went on a paid vacation 
for eight months <laughs> and didn't spend a dime of the rainy day fund during a time of record unemployment. And yet, what's the GOP doing right now? They are pushing to fritter away the surplus in order to starve schools and services. And if you haven't seen Kristen Bry's video that, that she did for us this week at Up North News, explaining what's called the Manufacturers and Agricultural Tax Credit. Sounds as American as apple pie, but there is no requirement to create jobs whatsoever. And you get Kristen's reaction to that, asking an expert about it. It's that kind of corporate tax giveaway that was put in place in the last decade and that some people want to do with our, our budget surplus this time around. And, and Governor Evers is having none of it. So let's take a break here. Uh, when we come back, Hans Breitenmoser will join us from up in Merrill. We'll talk about June Dairy Month, and then we will talk about redistricting uh, all up here on the cabin. You're up now. And welcome back to the Up North Podcast. I'm Kirk Bankstead, and now it's time to talk about June Dairy Month in Wisconsin. Yeah, uh, Kristen Bry is actually working on a story for Up North News on June Dairy Month, visiting a farm near Lake Mills. Uh, so before we get to our guest, who's uh, from a farm up in Lincoln County, let's, let's milk some statistics on why oh. we recognize dairying for an entire month. Uh, not just some cows and dairies. The dairy industry has a $45 billion economic impact in the state. A lot of what's produced here is exported around the world. About 300 million of the planet's humans consume Wisconsin dairy products. What kind of dairy products? I'm glad you asked. About 600 varieties of cheeses, more than 3 billion pounds made here in Wisconsin each year coming from one and a quarter million dairy cows who produce 30 billion pounds of milk. That is a lot of buckets being walked from Old Bessie over to the bulk tank. There are more than 7,000 dairy farms in Wisconsin, though the number that are truly family owned is probably not what it used to be. But here to tell us more about that is somebody who truly is part of a family farm operation. Uh, Hans Breitenmoser, he's active on the issue of nonpartisan redistricting as well. And we'll talk about that in our next segment. Uh, but first we wanna talk about Wisconsin's dairy industry, what it needs to be successful as we enter what we hope are the roaring 20s for Wisconsin's economy. Hans, great to have you here. Thank you again for joining us. Hi, Pat. Hi, Kirk. How are you? Hey, hey. good. And I'd like to just say, before we start talking to Hans about, about uh, uh, farming and dairy farming, I met you, I heard I've heard about you for years and I saw that Governor Evers had uh, you know you were at one of his state of the state addresses and he recognized you as being an early really early advocate of this fair maps movement that has been uh, uh, coming you know that is that is we've been working at in Wisconsin for a long time and so that's how I heard about you first and when I was running for office there you go brother there you go and for those of you who are on the radio he's putting up the fair maps uh, sign right now there it is every every, every Man, place that's past it yep and uh, so yeah you you came and and helped me kind of talk to a crowd of people uh, when I was running for office and so I got to know you then and then I even called you I, I wanted to put Hans's face on my fair maps IPA uh early on and it it, it didn't it, it, his head's kind of big so it didn't fit on the label but okay <laughs> so just thank you Hans for being such a wonderful Wisconsinite uh and for everything you do 
and thank you, Kirk, for not putting my face on a can of beer because uh, that would be a great way not to sell beer. I think not part of the business there. plan. Not 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 a good part of the business plan. Hans, and I was reminded. I, I just before I forget, I got to tell you this. I was reminded of you. Uh, I hadn't thought about you for a while, but I just sold a twenty-year-old three-quarter ton Dodge pickup truck with 260,000 miles on it, and it had the remnants of a Pat Kreitlow bumper sticker on it. So <laughs> I, I, I think you had, you, you can take some pleasure in knowing that that bumper sticker helped hold that truck together for probably the last five to 10,000 miles. I don't doubt, and, and trust me, as, as you know, as somebody who who grew up in the shadow of a of a 3M facility, uh, I know a thing or two about uh, adhesives, and nothing sticks tighter than a losing candidate's bumper sticker. Uh, so I, I'm I'm totally convinced. You don't you don't have to uh, you know tell me that you're fooling at all on that. All right, let's let's turn to uh, some of the the dairy farming that's going on here. Your your parents came here a little over 50 years ago from Switzerland. Um, with 20 cows. You've grown that to 450. Um, when I married my wife 35 years ago, she grew up on a farm, uh, six kids in Manitowoc County, and they were milking 72 cows. And that kept that one family busy. You've got 450 because that's basically what a family dairy farm looks like in Wisconsin right now, doesn't it? And it's not just you, your wife and five kids. Well, yeah, and I don't, I don't know what a family dairy farm in, in Wisconsin looks like anymore because, I mean, when I was a kid growing up, there were, you know, farms looked more like each other, which is to say everybody had about 60 cows and you had a, you know, maybe you had a different flavor barn cleaner and you had a different opinion on what tractors were the best, but they looked very similar. Now, um, the average herd size, I think, is probably around 110, 120 cows, but I'm not sure that average number really means anything anymore because we've got dairies that are sort of 25 cow grazing operations on up to obviously the mega dairies with multiples of thousands of cows. So there's, there's, it, it just, it's such a broad thing. Our farm happens to have about 450 cows. My wife has her own business, so she's not really involved in the farm other than to, you know, listen to me, you know, bellyache and complain <laughs> and, and stress about things. Uh, the, the children are involved in, in uh, you know, some aspects of the farm, but I, but I have uh, about a dozen employees as well. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the kind of world that we're, that we're in these days. So when we look at, um, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about the a state budget. Uh, we're not even going to get into federal dairy policy. You and I and others have, have tried eight ways to Sunday to, you know, back when Steve Gunderson was in Congress and, and everything about what's happening there. But look, from a state standpoint, I was looking at all the different ways a state budget could invest, you know, in, in Wisconsin farming to help them out. Everything from innovative practices in, in line with the Wisconsin idea, developing new markets, expanding broadband coverage, um, helping farmers get surplus products to food banks and pantries, strengthen the workforce, mental health resources. But then there was always one that was near and dear to my heart as a legislator, and that was ensuring that farm families had good schools in rural mm -hmm. districts so that exactly. families didn't feel the need to, to relocate. Any of them especially uh, important to you or any that I missed when we talk about why anybody that uh, cares about state government should care about how it invests in the rural economy? Yeah, well, I, th I think um, the state budget, the, um, the priorities in the state budget that are good for small businesses tend to be good for small, you know, family owned farms as well. Um, broadband obviously is huge. 
infrastructure uh, as far as roads. Um, but I also think that one of the things that gets missed is local control. I'm on the county board and um, one thing that that I think the state legislators could do is to to make sure that you know counties and townships have a say uh, in terms of you know what their counties and townships look like with regard to uh, CAFOs and and with regard to any types of businesses, but also um, because because it has such an impact on uh, our roads and so forth that the infrastructure that we're dealing with. So I think I think um, you know it's it's some of the same things where if if our legislators are um, you know giving lip service to small farms and other small businesses, but in fact their policy uh, tends to you know protect and and uh, favor large businesses. Uh, then in a roundabout way, the small businesses are hurt. Kirk, so we got uh, just less than a minute. What 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 do you want to know on the farming end of things? So, you, you've well, done so much homework on this. So Pat, so so Hans, just because I had you on, I actually spent a lot of time researching farming in Wisconsin because I didn't want to just sound like a complete idiot. But um, we've got one minute in this in this uh, in this segment. And Pat, I suggest we keep on going with farming when we get get back. Oh, we, break. no, we we absolutely will. So we'll, let's let's actually take a break here and catch our breath. Uh, we we will be back in just a little bit uh, to talk just a bit more about uh, you know dairy farming in Wisconsin uh, in in this day and age. But then we'll also talk about gerrymandering and how to stop having rigged maps in Wisconsin with our guest, Hans Breitenmoser. Uh, we'll be back at the cabin here in just a bit. You're up north. Welcome back to the Up North Podcast. I'm Pat Kreitlow, joined by Kirk Bankstead. Kristen Bry will be back next week. Okay, so Hans... As I said before our break, uh, it's I'm a dangerous man because I've read up on dairy farming for about four hours today, and that's about all I know. <laughs> this is, you know, between you doing the reading up for, for Hans to be our guest, and Kristen from Milwaukee, who's doing a report on, on a dairy farm right now. It's like I'm living Green Acres all. I, I feel like we should play the Green Acres theme here that you and you and Ava Gabor, you know, you're you're the Eddie Arnold over here. Um, anyway, take drop some knowledge on us, Kurtz. Here we so, go. No, I, I don't I want tons to drop knowledge. But I just want to be able to ask you questions. So I want to kind of like start us from the not the beginning of dairy farming in Wisconsin, oh, but kind of like the like where things kind of changed when 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 times were good, dairy farmers were making money. Um, you know, something changed uh, in the last uh, few years. We've heard these horrible uh, kind of statistics that there was dairy farming's going out of business like every day or every week. And uh, what what turned the tide? Uh, is it true that the that, that dairy farming in Wisconsin is 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 trending towards more hard, harder and and potentially you know not not profitable enough? And that's why people going out of business. What changed? And and what do you think are the main reasons for that? Well, I, I think it's important to understand that this is an evolution, not a revolution. Okay, I'm going to be 52 next month. I've lived in the same place my whole life. I've done this my whole life. My parents uh, grew up on, on this farm. And so I've watched how the, this has evolved. And so with every passing year, we've, we've, it is the case that we have fewer and fewer dairy farms and fewer and fewer farms in general, but fewer and fewer dairy farms. And we are the dairy state. Um, uh, we don't lose cow numbers because those cows tend to shift. So we have, uh, you know, larger and larger farms. 
you know, in, in, so you got more cows in, in, in uh, you know, one location versus lots of farms up and down the road. I have 450 cows. I've purchased a few neighboring farms in my career. Land became available and I bought it so I could expand my herd because uh, some of it is just, you know, the, you know, usual uh, ambition that any small business person has. You know, you look for the next challenge and you say, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to add a few cows, I'm going to add a few acres and that type of stuff. But, but also it's financially driven because, you know, health insurance costs uh, money regardless if you got 10 cows or 10,000 cows, you, you've got to buy health insurance. Uh, so there are those things to consider. Um, I think that that public policy uh, statewide public policy and and federal public policy does matter with regard to how the dairy industry has evolved. Um, you take Canada for example, uh, and a lot of far, a lot of dairy farmers won't be happy to you know to you know hear a, a dairy farmer talk about this. But in in Canada they've had a quote, quota system uh, since like the late 60s. And, and so what happened there was the Canadian farmers got together and they basically lobbied the, the, the state, which is to say Canada, to say, we want to be, we want to have legalized price fixing is basically what it boils down to. And the, the, the state, the, the federal government in Canada said, yeah, that seems about right, go for it. And so what that allowed the Canadian producers to do is to basically form, um, you know, a it's kind of like OPEC of dairy, if you will, and right. for these dairy farmers to to um, to get together and say, okay, we know what our demand is, and it's a moving target, but we can forecast that to a certain extent. Therefore, we will control the supply. Now, what that does is that puts farmers in a position of, okay, maybe I'd like to add 100 cows to my herd, but if I do so, I'm going to get paid next to nothing for the extra milk over my quota. That, that and that's really what, yeah, in in my mind, it comes down to is is the failure to um, adopt or agree upon supply management. Uh, and you and there's been a lot of debate about whether that would be right or wrong, the free market, what have you. But you know that that and a host of other factors is is what really I've been right, following. But, go ahead, Hans. Well, and but but I think I, I think supply management in the dairy industry in this country has caught on a little bit, and one of the reasons why is yeah, because too, far too late. I mean, it, this is well, something right. that we should have been talking about know, thirty years ago. Right, exactly, and I don't know if we'll ever get over that hump because, as I mentioned earlier, you've got twenty-five cow grass-based dairies, you've got five thousand cow dairies. Their 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 worldviews are different. Their interests yeah, are different. Yeah, the so game forth. is totally different now. But so. but I think it's important for. Uh, consumers and farmers and, you know, uh, conservative politicians to understand that up in Canada, both the conservatives and the progressive politicians like the system. And, and the, the reason why the conservatives like the system up there is because the dairy industry in Canada has never asked for dime one from the taxpayers. Whereas in this country, regardless if you got a big herd or a small herd, every time the milk price takes a crap, then some politicians feel sorry for the dairy industry and because we've got our hand out and we take taxpayer dollars to subsidize right. our operations to keep them going. Oh, that does nothing to reduce the supply and it only gives our consumers heartburn and our taxpayers heartburn. It's so no I think it's incumbent upon the dairy industry to take responsibility and say, we've created this problem ourselves. It should be on us to handle it. So the idea that this is somehow anti capitalist or anti-free market is nonsense. I think it's anti-free market to take taxpayer dollars and hand them to me because my industry hasn't hasn't done a good job in controlling the supply. Right, as has happened in so many industries. I got one more question maybe before we go to the gerrymandering topic. Um, 
I just want, I mean, you told us the past and some of the evolution. Are, are small dairy farms uh, going to be obsolete and it's going to be corporate, big, huge behemoths are going to kind of run the not. industry in Wisconsin? I hope not. I mean, that's certainly the trend that we've seen, but I think there are a lot of smaller producers that are doing all right. They're making money because they're very smart. They're very driven. Um, I think it, it's, it's also a fact that most dairy farmers, uh, especially small family farms, have someone in the family who works off the farm to get not only additional income, but also to supply the health care, uh, you know, the health insurance. Um, so I, I'm not ready to, you know, put the last nail in the coffin of the small uh, producer, but I do think that, you know, having some kind of a supply management system would help to beat health. I think having uh, what, what the state can do with the state of Wisconsin at, at, the, at Madison, what we can do public policy wise there is to make sure we've got local control so that counties and townships can decide themselves if, if somebody wants to go from, you know, a thousand cows to 10,000 cows, that the people living next door whose property values might be negatively impacted have something to say about that. And I think then that's very organically going to keep the proliferation of the mega dairies uh, to a minimum. And, and again, I don't want to sound all anti-mega dairy because I know some of these guys and they're wonderful people and hard workers and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're good guys. But, but, but you got to treat them like a factory. It is a factory farm and factories have rules regarding pollution and, and things like that. Absolutely. And a factory farm should be the same way. It, it, yes, you can exist so long as you can exist just like any other factory would get your permits. Right. You know, things like that. Exactly. And but but again, getting to what we can do then public policy wise at the state level, because I feel like your audience is a state level kind of a thing is we have to make sure that the DNR is not politicized, that the DNR right. follows science and so forth. Uh, you know, keep the DNR independent and doing its job. And we need to make sure that we've got good infrastructure uh, and, and we need to make sure we have good local control uh, so that localities can make these decisions. Because you know you might have a locality that says, yeah, somebody's looking for a permit to for a thousand cows, and you might say, yeah, that makes perfect sense in our area. You're going to have other areas that say, no, we don't want that here, and that's legit too, because you know it impacts, it may impact water, and it certainly impacts uh, you know property values and so sure. forth, and, sure. and so, the impact on the roads. Again, as long as you've got a, a DNR that's not politicized and, and actually looks out for the state's resources. Our guest exactly. is Hans Breitenmoser, a dairy farmer from Merrill. He's also active in the push to get rid of Wisconsin's gerrymandered maps. And so, Hans, let's pivot there. And as we explain what exists in Wisconsin now, let me ask a personal question. How did you first decide to get involved with gerrymandered maps? What, what was it that stuck with you when you learned about this and said, I, I want to be active and tell people that we can do better than this? Yeah, well, um, I've been on the Lincoln County Board of Supervisors since 2012. And it was in 2017, uh, late 2016, early 2017, where I sort of became aware of the impact of having gerrymandered districts, which is to say, at the county level, um, I really didn't feel like our representatives in Madison were really listening to us um, because I felt like at the county board level, we'd sit around and we talk about, you know, road funding, dried up, can't do anything, levy limits, well, we were hands are tied there. Um, you know, we see all these things at the local level and we're like, well, why, why aren't we able to do anything? Why don't we have any resources? Why don't we have any money? And, and, and why aren't, you know, we're, this is a democracy, what's the problem? Well, when you start to understand how the lines are drawn and start to understand um, who's actually running things, 
which is to say political party bosses, um, then you understand that that's the root of the problem. So I felt like at the county level, we're, we're dealing with symptoms and dealing with symptoms. And I think it's, it's, it's analogous to you know, my life on the farm. I mean, you can, you can you know, deal with a symptom, that's fine to you know, put out today's fire, but you have to look at, okay, what's the root cause of these problems? And it became clear that we have the root cause is, is the gerrymandered districts and the influence of money in our political system. So until and unless we root those out, we're, we're stuck with the same sort of maybe not great public policy. So Hans, uh, that's got, got you into it. Um, on the back of my fair maps can, I list some statistic that say, uh, you know, like something like 50 some counties out of the 72 counties have all had referenda that they've uh, voted uh, in four fair maps, like 80% of people who get this question posed to them are like, of course we want fair maps. Um, tell me, you're the one who kind of started getting these uh, referenda kind of in, in t small towns up in, up, up in Northern Wisconsin, central Northern Wisconsin. How, was, how did you start doing that? I mean, tell me about the history of these referenda and why a lot of us know about this issue now. Well, for starters, I think I get way more credit than I deserve. What I did in 2017 was draft a resolution. And basically that resolution was, was, had already passed in Wood County several years before. So there was a handful of counties, county boards who had passed resolutions, but then it kind of petered out and died off. So in 2017, I'm looking at this gerrymandering thing and I'm thinking, okay, what can I do from my slightly elevated perch on the county board? Um, you know, I mean, it's the county board. There's only so much we're gonna do, right? <laughs> and, and so some of these things you do to sort of draw attention. So in, so in spring of 2017, I draft this resolution. I'm, I'm on the administrative legislative committee and I count the votes and I'm thinking, yeah, this will I can get this through A&L and therefore it'll get to the full county board. And I thought about it and I'd be like, yeah, I think we can get it to pass on the full county board. And it should have, it's, it's symbolic, but it should have, you know, an impact. Um, and I think maybe it was just the timing was right. But I also think the fact that Lincoln County, Podunk, Little Lincoln County, which is in most people's eyes seen as a red, you know, uh, basically our county board in 2017 said, yes, we want a nonpartisan procedure for drawing these lines. And it passed overwhelmingly. We didn't get 100% of the county board supervisors on the bus, but the vast majority of them uh, said, yes, of course we should do that. And, and then, you know, it, it occurred to me as I was going through the trouble that it's not good enough for us to just say this so that we hear it ourselves in the boardroom. The point is to, to, to in, in order for it to have any kind of impact, we need to make sure the world knows about it. So I made sure that, you know, and by then I had connections with Wisconsin Farmers Union, who was an advocate for fair maps uh, and all, you know, the other fair maps people who existed at that time around the state. And I tried to, you know, sort of make a little bit of noise about it. Um, and that seemed to reverberate. And so pretty soon people were emailing me and calling me and, and you know, how did you do that in Lincoln County? How can we do it here? So it just sort of took off from there. Um, and then the next logical step was the referendums. And uh, you know, we didn't know for sure what to expect, but in the fall of 2018, when we voted for nothing but Republicans up and down the ballot in Lincoln County, 65-ish percent of us also voted in favor of a nonpartisan procedure. So it was one more way, and I think a, 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 a far more impactful way than the resolutions to, to get our politicians to, to listen. And I think um, 
I think it, it's worked. I, it's, it's worked. That's the short. Yeah, I mean, not I mean, not worked to get um, to get something done uh, at the legislative level. But what has happened is because they see that there's no action happening, it only reinforces the notion that you know the the there is gerrymandering that these legislators are not accountable to what such a vast majority of their constituents want. So Hans, thank you again. It, it was great to, to talk with you. We really appreciate it. Please come back again and we'll spend some more time on, on both issues here. You bet, thank you. All right, uh, Thanks, we will uh, be back to wrap up the show in a bit. You're up North. Hey, the Up North podcast sounds like it should be some kind of big deal production with a staff of minions and interns and some really, really misguided groupies. Uh, but it's not. This is basically a coffee clutch put together by the three of us who each have day jobs we would love you to support. And uh, since Kristen is off this week, I'm going to tell you about her part. Uh, As Goes Wisconsin produces social media videos that combine all things Wisconsin. It could be history, sports, politics. Uh, she breaks it down with a comedic twist in videos that are 60 seconds or less. Uh, so it doesn't matter if you're on the, the face page, uh, the Insta, whatever, the Twitter machine, TikTok, just search for As Goes Wisconsin, and you'll find what Kristen's doing. And we're going to tell you about her latest video in just a minute. But first, uh, Kirk's going to tell us about his day job. Yeah, so um, obviously, I own the Monaco Brewing Company and the Monaco Brewing Company's Super Pack. Uh, 5% of all the profits from my beer and merch go to the Super Pack, which is dark money meant for good. This week, uh, I want to focus on our party coming up. We talked a little about it at the top of the show, but I want to promote the second leg of the Inoculation Emancipation Tour happening at Funk's Pub in Fitchburg this Saturday, June 12th from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. This event celebrates the freedom we gain when we get vaccinated with a day-long live music and beer celebration without masks and a wonderful feeling that you're in a very COVID safe place. Those that aren't vaxxed are invited to come to the separate shot in a beer tent where nurses from the Dane County Public Health Department will be provi providing one and done Johnson and Johnson shots and every participant can get a free beer to wash that Fauci ouchie away. <laughs> so tickets cost 15 bucks ahead of time and 20 bucks at the door. And you can buy tickets now by going to Eventbrite and searching on inoculation emancipation. I'm pretty sure that's the only uh, name of a party happening in the, in the next few days. You'll find it. It's just nothing short of genius. Um, now, and again, I'm Pat Kreitler here to remind you that the Up North podcast is an independent endeavor, not part of Up North News. The similarly named but unaffiliated newsroom that I operate, along with a team of reporters and support staff and storytellers like Kristen, you can sign up for the daily newsletter that I assemble every weekday morning by visiting our website, upnorthnewswi.com, and clicking newsletter up in the top banner. We also want to thank Double Radio, News Talk 92.7, where we air live on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And be sure to download the Double Radio app. You can listen to the station live, on the go, get shows on demand, and more. And you can maybe send us email, too, if you want. Info at upnorthpodcast.com. Now, a little earlier, we talked about the new projection that the state budget would have a significant surplus. And we know Republican lawmakers would rather set it on fire than use it for schools and roads and other services. There is one thing they are willing to spend the money on, and that would be more tax breaks for businesses. But Wisconsin taxpayers have already sent almost a couple billion dollars away from schools and roads and services 
and to businesses in a massive tax break that surprisingly does not require any proof of job creation. Kristen put together a report this week for Up North News about it, talking to Tamarine Cornelius of Kids Forward, and let's hear what she had to say. We keep hearing the debate about ending some people's government handouts. But for all the time state lawmakers are saying no to more support, there's one big handout they just can't quit. It's a tax break that goes to some of the wealthiest people in Wisconsin, and they get it by just owning a certain type of business. The manufacturing agriculture credit is a tax credit that means that manufacturers and some other businesses pay either nothing in income taxes or next to nothing in income taxes. The manufacturing and agriculture tax credit costs Wisconsin taxpayers nearly $400 million a year. That's money that could go to schools or roads or broadband, but instead is going to people who may or may not be job creators. They're getting all this money. They're basically paying nothing in income taxes, but there has to be some kind of like qualifications beyond just being a manufacturing company, right? They don't have to create a certain number of jobs? No. Do they have to create any jobs? No. Well, they can't like close factories, could they? Yeah. There's virtually no requirements in terms of job creation or anything other than simply being a manufacturer. Huh. What's that mean to your bank account? I don't know. I haven't seen your recent statement. But <laughs> this tax break does mean that a lot of manufacturing workers pay a lot more in taxes than their bosses. Let's say there's a uh, a business owner who owns a, uh, a manufacturing company and has $3 million worth of income from that manufacturing company, he probably wouldn't pay any income tax at all on that $3 million, not, not a dime. But a, a worker working in his factory who earns between say 30 and $40,000 a year, that worker would pay probably around on average $1,000 in income tax. So the, the factory owner wouldn't pay anything on the income from that manufacturing, but the factory worker would pay. Oh, wow. So there you go. That's uh, that's what Kristen put together uh, over at Up North News. And one more thing that to, to close out the show that you'll find at, at Up North News, uh, and that is our question of the week. We ask you for examples of your favorite Wisconsin dairy products. And I mean, that's wide open. It could just be a generic chocolate milk. It could be the cheese curds from a certain supper club. And so, Kirk, I don't know if either you want to talk about back when you had the restaurant or something else, but what when you say Wisconsin, favorite Wisconsin <laughs> dairy product, what do you well, Pat, go to? Well, well Pat, I, my, my head... You're you're usually the best at segues because you have a life in, in TV and 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 my head is still ringing from hearing that a, a guy making three million dollars doesn't pay any <laughs> doesn't pay any income tax, but his worker making thirty has to pay more. I I, I, I can't really think about what my, my favorite cheese curds from Ellsworth, them, Wisconsin, right now when when I'm just <laughs> when I'm red faced and, and sick to my stomach from what, what I just I've heard. Done to you. I'm so sorry, but yeah, it, it's, oh, it is. And, and basically they're saying, you know, let them eat cake with ice cream and ice cream is a perfectly fine thing to come. <laughs> I, I have to say that I, I, I tried to na narrow this down, but I can't. It's like choosing your favorite kid. So in no particular order, uh, Nasonville Dairy, the cheese curds, the squeaky fresh ones on Highway 29, that little yellow building between Abbotsford and Curtis, yeah. so good. But also there along 29 near Thorpe, uh, Marietta Gouda, uh, and let's see what else. Oh yes. The big glass of chocolate milk right after my wife makes cookies. That's, I mean, 
the well, Aldenburg Aldenburg Dairy on my way on Highway 10 when from growing up in Stevens Point I would always go to Minneapolis to just see the big city and there's always this Aldenburg Dairy that had chocolate malts and I don't even know if they're still around anymore but I grew up wanting to stop every time we went to Minneapolis going there. best thing we got from Wisconsin cows is the ability to have ice cream and malts um all right Kirk <laughs> thanks for joining us at the cabin this week where an old-fashioned isn't just a beverage it's how we like to talk to each other and goodness knows we need more of that so for Kristen Bry and Kirk Bankstead I'm Pat Crightlow we'll see you next time up north